Good to see you guys. Uh, today's a big day. Who knows what today is? Well, I, I heard it was the day that Rihanna came back from a seven-year hiatus to sing live again. Um, word on the street is there's a game being played before and after that event, but uh, the uh, I don't know, some, some of you guys are just interested in the halftime event. Who's uh, anybody? No? No honest people here. Uh, I full confession. I had to ask who was in the Super Bowl, but I'm excited to to watch it. Um, and uh, it's also a big day because we're beginning a new series, the series of the Good News Apocalypse. And uh, I've been looking forward to doing this series. At, I've been tentatively looking forward to doing this series uh, for quite uh, some time. I've had a number of people say, you know, I'm either, I'm so excited about the series, uh, and I'm really, other people have said, I'm really nervous about the series. Uh, I'm afraid of what you're going to say, because there's so many different ideas uh, about the apocalypse, about uh, particularly the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, which is the book that we're going to be spending time in. Uh, It's going to take us 13 weeks. And, uh, which honestly, for some of you, like, that's way too long. Um, for me, I'm like, when I originally planned it out, I, I think I, I, I mapped it out and it was going to take us 28 weeks and Pastor Dan said, that is way too long. So, uh, uh, so we've cut it down uh, quite a bit. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so we're going to, uh, in my mind, we're going to actually go through it quite quickly. And I think you'll, you'll feel like it's probably too quick. Uh, but hopefully giving us enough uh, tools uh, and understanding and context to approach this uh, book, uh, this wonderful book of the Bible uh, that concludes uh, our scriptures, uh, the book of Revelation. And the document, uh, this book is full of uh, weird, frightening imagery. It's a document full of seemingly confusing symbolism. And we meet uh, lots of different characters. We meet a man who is clothed in a robe. His eyes are a a flame of fire. His face shines like the sun. We meet a great dragon who has ten horns and seven heads. And we meet a beast from the sea that has ten horns and seven heads. And a beast from the earth that has two horns like a lamb and speaks like a dragon. We meet creatures that have eyes in the front and the back and who are never ceasing to sing holy, holy, holy. We have these four horsemen, which is uh, become popularized in our culture, uh, three of whom bring devastation upon the earth. Uh, there's massive earthquakes, um, and there's this event where it becomes so black it looks like sackcloth. Uh, there's locusts that are as big as horses with faces like men, and on and on it goes, and there's all these characters that we uh, come across in the book of Revelation. And uh, why would we spend such uh, an amazing or such a profound amount of time when we think of 13 weeks uh, studying such a book with all of this symbolism, all of these characters, all of these things that uh, people have you know, wrestled with and disagreed with on what they mean and what they're about uh, for, uh, for most of history. Uh, and I think that it's important that we spend time in this book because uh, this book was written for the people of God to be encouraged in times of pressure in times of uncertainty, in times of uh, when there's been a temptation to compromise what they believe in, in times of political and economic upheaval. Does this sound familiar to anybody? But also because of that, people in times of ep- economic and political upheaval and uncertainty and uh, not sure of what's going on have taken this book uh, and have, I think, often twisted it uh, to kind of align with their own agenda or their own perspectives. And there's been a lot of misunderstanding on what this book is also about. And so in some ways, I believe this book is timely 
because it speaks directly to us in this time in history, and it's important that we heed what it's saying. Uh, and it's also timely because uh, it, we're in one of those points in history where people are referring to revelations, and you have Christians like saying, you know, this is what's going to happen, and this is, you know, the end of the world's coming, and all these things. And it's like, what do you do with that? What do you make of it? Um, and so I think it's important that we spend some time. Uh, taking a look at this book in particular. Uh, Daryl Johnson said, there's no other book I know explains what is going on in the world as well as this book does. And I would concur with that. Uh, This was actually the first book of the Bible I tried to read when I was uh, in junior high. I remember, okay, I'm going to read this thing. Uh, And I heard, you know, all this end time stuff was was really popular when I was a kid. And uh, so I'm like, I'm going to start there. And boy, was I confused. I opened this thing up. I'm like, I can't read this. Uh, And I remember like praying uh, my junior high self. And I said, Lord, I don't know what this means, uh, but I don't want you to come back. Uh, Please don't come back. Uh, And I remember praying this specific prayer. I said, don't come back until I have sex. This is the, the prayer of a... The honest prayer of a junior high boy. I'm like, please, not now. Please, you know, um, I'm just coming. I'm, I'm, I'm just coming into being. I'm, I'm growing up. I'm, you know, I'm, so whatever. This is, uh, me and this book go way back. Um, so, some of you are going to be, you're, you're wondering, okay, where's, uh, you know, is this just Matt's thoughts on, on the book, book of Revelation? So I have a bunch of companions, and some of you will be interested in this, others won't care. Uh, but here's some resources if you want to take a picture on your phone, if you're in, into this kind of stuff and want to do a really deep dive. Uh, those are, you know, kind of the main group of books that... Uh, you know, that'll be kind of guiding us on our journey. Uh, the most notable one is the first one. That's why I put it first. Uh, Daryl Johnson's Discipleship on the Edge. I've kind of used that as a framework uh, for this series. So I am indebted to Daryl Johnson and his years of work on this book. Okay, are we ready? Rob's ready. Um, I'm actually going to invite you to stand back up if you're able, and I'm going to read uh, the first chapter of the book of Revelation, which is where we begin this morning. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. From the sevenfold spirit before his throne and from Jesus Christ, he is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead, and the ruler of all the kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from sins by freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father, all glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven, and every one will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. 
I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the spirit. Suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the city of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Theatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were flames of fire, were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held, he held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead, but he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the, death, I hold the keys of death and the grave. Write down what you have seen, but the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw on my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Amen. You can have a seat. Anyone confused yet? What? Uh, There's a lot in there. Uh, so again, we're not, uh, chapter one, we could probably spend 13 weeks on chapter, chapter one. Uh, and so my attempt is not going to be, uh, my approach is not going to be to go through it, uh, thoroughly. Uh, you'll probably still come away with lots of, lots of questions. Uh, but my hope is to kind of take a broader, bigger picture view of this book, uh, and look at the major themes and what it has to say to us in our time. Uh, But many of us, we head into this book and we feel like this. Good luck. Here you go. You you, you felt that a little bit when we read the first chapter. Oh my goodness. What does this even mean? Where are we going? Um, And uh, so I know many times in my life I feel like this when when I have approached the book of Revelation. Uh, One of us have, or many of us have felt like the book of Revelation simply is this. This whole thing is going this way, and it's a, a dead end, uh, and so we've had a certain view of the end times or eschatology, and that the primary meaning of the book was to tell us how everything was going to implode and explode, um, and uh, there's definitely uh, some major themes and images of, of destruction in the book of Revelation. We'll, we're going to get to that a little bit later, but is that really the direction of the book or the, the main point of the book? Uh, I don't think so, but uh, again, we need to have the eyes to see and understand uh, what we're reading, uh, because everything has a context, everything uh, comes from someplace, it was written in a time and space, uh, and we know that even culturally that you have to have an awareness of your culture and a language to understand what you're reading or seeing in a, la- in a particular place, like this sign. What does that sign even mean? It's taken outside of my house. <laughs> What does that sign mean? Uh, you know, think about the different ways that you could read that sl- sign. Careful, there's children that are moving very, very slowly. 
Um, watch out. Uh, or careful, there's children that, are, don't, quick, that, that don't think too quickly. Uh, you know, but you would, you would say, well, I understand the point of the sign. Why? Because you grew up and understand this culture and what it's uh, saying and it's telling you to slow down, not to drive so fast because there's children playing. You can fill in the gaps. You can fill in the gaps because you know that. You know, if you were to read this sign, um, you know, we're offering this giant tent sale. What does that mean? Is it a sale on tents that were made for giants? If you're a giant, we've got a tent for you. Uh, is it a sale on tents that are really giant tents? Like these are really big tents and we're, we're offering really big tents. So if you've got a really big family, this is a sale for you. Um, is it a sale on di- lots of different tents or, you know, what, what is the point of it? Well, we would read it and say, well, it's not a sale about tents at all. This is, this is a tent sale. It's an outside sale and they might be selling cars or furniture or something else. And you would know that. Why? Because you live in our culture, in our context, and you can fill in the gaps um, and you would read that and say, I can understand that actually quite clearly. Um, whereas we take a step back and you were to imagine what that means. If you didn't speak your language, you weren't from our culture, you'd say, ah, that's confusing. Um, so this is important to keep in mind as we come to the book of Revelation, uh, that this book comes from a date, from a certain time in history, from a certain context. There's certain images and symbolism and references in this book that would have made sense to the first century church that was reading it uh, for a lot of reasons that, that we're going to get into. Um, I forgot to mention this earlier, uh, but we have these available at uh, the Welcome Center uh, for $8, and what it is is just the Bible journal, uh, and I would encourage you to pick it up, uh, and it just goes through the, the text. There's text, the Revelation text on one side, and then there's places for notes on the other side. Um, and so I invite you to pick one up and allow this to be your companion throughout the series as you kind of take notes and we journey through it together. So that's available at the Welcome Center. Okay, date and context. So we're going to just get a little, you know, nerdy here for a second, more of a teaching this morning as we set the stage for what's coming. Uh, But this book was written at a certain time in history. It had a historical context. It was written somewhere between AD 92 and 96, most likely in 96. Uh, there's persecution happening in the Roman Empire, and it had already began all the way back in AD 65 under the Emperor Nero. And this intensified um, all the way up into 67 AD under the uh, Emperor Vespasian. And shortly after that, a few years later, uh, in AD 70, if you know what happened there, the, the Temple of Jerusalem had been destroyed. Uh, the people of God, uh, the church had come under great persecution. They were being spread out all over the place. Uh, Peter and Paul, by this time, had been crucified. Uh, Timothy was murdered for his faith. Uh, but in AD 92, things actually got worse. Uh, Domitian was the emperor uh, at that time, and he was a profoundly insecure man, which seemed to be the case for most of uh, the people, for the Caesars that were in the Roman Empire. Uh, and to compensate for his insecurity, he actually ordered all citizens uh, and subjects of the Roman Empire to worship him as Lord and God. So Emperor Domitian ordered all of the people in the Roman Empire to worship him as Lord and God. He changed the name of the Roman Empire at that time to the Eternal Empire, and he called himself the Everlasting King. So big ego, very insecure. Uh, The citizens of the Roman Empire um, were obligated to go to a temple uh, and to uh, acknowledge 
that he was Lord. In fact, they, they were to go to the temple and say, Caesar Kyrios, which means Caesar is Lord. And here's what's interesting is that Caesar was okay. Domitian was okay with uh, people worshiping other gods in that time. Uh, he just wanted to be one of the gods. So you can have your religion, you can have your practices, you can worship as you like. And so in that way, he was quote unquote tolerant, uh, but he was intolerant to the idea that he needs to be worshipped as well. This posed a problem uh, for the church who were not polytheists, right? So poly being many, many gods. They weren't believers that there was many gods. They were believers in one God, monotheists. And so the the church had, uh, they were in quite a bit of a conundrum. Do we acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and that Caesar is Lord and that there's many gods Or do we hold to our conviction that there's one Lord and that there's one God? Knowing that if we hold on to that, it might cost us our very lives. So this was the tension that the early Christians uh, were under at this time. The unity of the empire, the unity of the state consisted of the worship of Caesar. So not worshiping Caesar was viewed as disrupting the unity of the Roman Empire. Uh, So John, as we just read, if you notice in the first chapter, that he was exiled to the island Patmos, he says, for the preaching of the gospel. So he was proclaiming that there was one Lord. Uh, There was many Christians that did that, that actually paid for that with their lives, but presumably because John was, had such a great influence uh, that instead of killing him and causing a riot and an upheaval, uh, they moved him to the island of Patmos where uh, he was to spend the remainder of his life. So John was lucky in that way that he got to hang on to his life uh, because others didn't have that same fortune. So John, while he's in prison in Patmos for preaching the gospel that Jesus is Lord, that there's one Lord, uh, is writing to his churches. So this is important for us to keep in mind as we open the book of Revelation that John is first and foremost a pastor. He's a pastor. He's writing to seven churches that he had influence on that we just named that were listed in Revelation chapter 1. He's thinking of them. He's praying for them. He is trying to encourage them. The church is being scattered. The church is undergoing persecution. The the church is actually, um, there's economic constraints being put on them because they won't acknowledge that Caesar is Lord. And John is trying to encourage them and tell them, stay faithful overcome. And many of them are wrestling. Is it worth it? Wouldn't it just be easier just to say Caesar is Lord, you know, worship Jesus on the side and Caesar is Lord. And then we could live life in the Roman empire in comfort like everybody else. And John is encouraging him. Don't be overcome. So he's writing to them as a pastor and he's writing to them in a way that has to go through. So think of it. He's in prison in, in the Island of Patmos his letters have to be his letter has to be delivered to the churches, uh, and so it's passing through the hands of Roman officials, uh, Roman guards, and so he's written it, and Jesus has given this vision to him in such a way uh, that is not easily discernible for someone that is not familiar with the story of God. And so the Roman officials would have read this. And they probably would have felt much like you and I felt when we read that. You're like, oh, what is this? Uh, John's crazy. Who cares? Let's, uh, <laughs> let's circulate the letter. Um, and so he, he writes in this way that is very heavily 
influenced by the, the symbolism and the story of God and his people. In fact, there's 500 quotations or allusions to the Old Testament and the book of Revelation. 500 allusions or quotations from our Old Testament in the book of Revelation. And so this fact alone tells me that we cannot understand the book of Revelations if we're not steeped in the whole Bible. And so if we go to Revelation and we, we kind of a, treat it as separate than the rest of the scriptures, we're going to be very confused and not understand it correctly uh, because John has written it in the context that the people reading it understand the Old Testament, that they understand the symbolism and the imagery and the references and the, and the things that, that we're reading about. In that first chapter alone, uh, there was references to lots of different things in scriptures. I don't know if you could, could pick up on them, but one of the big ones being in Daniel 7, where it talks about uh, the Son of Man coming, and it refers to Jesus, who is on his way, coming like a man in the clouds, the Son of Man. Uh, this is a reference right there in Daniel 7. It's not the only one in the first chapter, but there's, there's multiple. And so we have to recognize that this is the language of Revelation, uh, mostly the Old Testament, and then also there's imagery, political imagery from Rome at the time as well, and we'll, we'll come across that imagery as well. And so we have to be familiar with the context, with the history. Um, Eugene Peterson says, and this is helpful for us, I think, as we, we approach the book, he says, I do not read the Revelation to get additional information about the life of faith in Christ. I've read it all before in law and prophet, in gospel and epistle. Everything in Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. The Revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know. The truth of the gospel is already complete, revealed in Jesus Christ. There's nothing new to say on the subject, but there is a new way to say it. I read... The revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. St. John uses words the way poets do, recombining them in fresh ways so that the old truth is freshly perceived. He takes truth that has been eroded to platitude by endless usage and sets it in motion before us in an animated, impassioned dance of ideas. I love that. And so what Eugene Peterson is saying is that if we go to the book of if we go to Revelation and we think, okay, I'm going to get something new, he's like, you're going to miss it. Because Revelation is not telling you something that the Bible already didn't tell you. But it's telling you it in a particular context. And it's telling you it in a way that should stir us into worship and into action and into conviction and into greater commitment to following Jesus. So that's important. As we head into the book, if we're going to understand it correctly, we need to understand it. it's steeped in the Old Testament. There's imagery from the Roman Empire. And that there's nothing new that it's saying that hasn't already been said somewhere else, but it's saying it maybe in a new way uh, for a new time. What's also helpful as we start to navigate into the book is that we need to keep the title of the book in mind because the title tells us a lot. The title of the book is... A revelation of Jesus Christ, or the New Living Translation, which we're reading from in this series, is, uh, translates it from Jesus Christ. That's the title of the book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not revelations. There's not multiple revelations. The title is not just the revelation. The, t- the title isn't the revelation of John. The title is the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
from Jesus Christ. So how is this word of or from being used? Does it mean that the revelation came by Jesus Christ? It can, the word can also mean it came about Jesus Christ. This is the revelation that's about Jesus Christ. So is it from, by, about? What, what does this mean? And the answer is yes. It is the revelation from Jesus Christ. This is, this is the word that's being used. From Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ. That word can be translated all three ways. Which tells us that the revelation that we're reading is fundamentally about a person. It's about a person. It's not about an event. It's not about some abstract code or something that we got to figure out. It's actually the revelation from Jesus, by Jesus, and it's about Jesus. And so that tells me if we read this book and we come to the end of it and we're infatuated with the number 666 and trying to figure out what this number even means, and it's a good question to ask, but if we think that that's the point, we've missed the point. If we come and we read through this book and we, we're infatuated with the, you know, the battle of Armageddon and we, we think, ah, you know, I got to figure out, you know, what does this mean and where's this going to happen and what are the events that are going to take place? Uh, if we think that's the point of revelation, we miss the point. It's the revelation from Jesus, by Jesus, and it's about Jesus. It's all about the person of Jesus. For a church that was wondering, God, where are you? Are you paying attention to what's happening in the world? John actually sees a vision that is from Jesus, by Jesus, and it's about Jesus. And referring to the Battle of Armageddon, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, um, but did you know, spoiler alert, that the battle actually never happens? <sighs> You know, all this turmoil and all this building happens in the book and then Jesus shows up and then it never actually happens. So anyways, we'll get there later. Uh, just a bit of a teaser. Uh, so the word revelation is actually the Greek word apocalypse. Everybody say apocalypse. Um, so we translated revelation, but the, the word is actually apocalypse. So the title of the book is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And so when you hear this word, what do you think or what do you feel? What do you sense? The end of the world. Oh no, something bad's going to happen. You know, this is why we picked the title that we did for the series, The Good News Apocalypse, because it, you know, culturally it should probably create a little bit of tension when we read that story. But in the first century, it wouldn't have created that tension at all. Because when we read the apocalypse, we think the end of something, destruction, the end of the world, uh, something bad. But that's not what the word apocalypse means. If the first century hearers would have heard the word apocalypse, they would have said, oh good, we've been wondering. Because the word simply means unveiling, unboxing, pulling back the curtain. Like if I were to undo my shirt right now. You're wondering, what's behind his shirt? Am I going to see a six-pack? Does he have anything on? Centennial Coyotes represent. Okay. Um, who won a tournament on the weekend, by the way? Uh, but that would be, you just experienced an apocalypse. This, th this was an apocalyptic moment. 
Uh, I don't know what's going on. Uh, even if we walked outside the church right now, I don't know if it's uh, cloudy or sunny out today. Um, but it, you could use this as a as an illustration too. If when the when there's clouds in the sky, you can't see past the clouds. They're distorting your vision. But we know that just because we can't see what's behind it doesn't mean that there's not something behind it. Doesn't mean that there's not stars behind it. Doesn't mean that there's not a sun behind it. Doesn't mean that there aren't other things that are outside of our view. And when the clouds clear, it's an apocalyptic moment. In fact, did you know that Calgary is is the sunniest city in all of Canada? They say that we have about 333 days of sun a year. And so you could actually say in complete um, clarity and legitimacy that Calgary is the most apocalyptic, has the most apocalyptic weather in Canada. It's true. But that's not how we think of the word. We think, well, if I were to say Calgary is the most apocalyptic, it means that it must be this treacherous weather. Storms. No, that's not what it means. Apocalypse means the unveiling, the unboxing, the pulling back of a curtain. Something that wasn't immediately visible that was actually happening, but you didn't understand that it was happening or was there and you didn't see that it was there and now it's revealed and you can see it. And so the title of the book is The Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. It's the revealing of Jesus. It's the unveiling of Jesus. When the world looks like it's under turmoil and we think that this is all we can see, Jesus gives John this revelation, this apocalypse that pulls back the curtains and says, there's more than what you can see. Everything is not as it seems. And perhaps this is a timely message for us again, that no matter what's going on in our world, when we pull back the curtain and see Jesus for who he is and for what he's done, we will be reminded again that what is happening is not all that is happening. That everything is not as it seems. This book is about Jesus. It's from Jesus. It's by Jesus. And when we see him for who he is and what he's done, it changes everything. So this is what the pastor John was encouraging his church with, saying, see Jesus. Experience the apocalypse. And if you see him, you'll see that it's good news. Despite the bad news that you're living in, it's good news. Um, And so as we, again, as we go into the, uh, further into the book, I'm just giving us, Uh, the tools and the perspective, the foundation for us to launch forward, uh, we need to ask the question, what kind of literature is this? And first and foremost, like I said, that John is a pastor, and so this is a letter. First, uh, or in verse 4, it says, this letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Can we read that line together? This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Seems like such a simple line, but I think it's so, so important to read over and over and over again uh, because most people miss this. They don't, they don't, I mean, John says exactly what this is. This letter or this book is primarily a letter from Pastor John to seven churches in the province of Asia, which is modern day Turkey. That is the context. It was written to seven churches. It was written to them, but it was written for us. It was written to them in a particular context that has timeless truths that are still there to encourage us today. Yes? Okay? It's a letter from John to these seven churches. Also, it's a prophecy. 
Five times John uh, or the angel in the book of Revelation refers to this text itself as a prophecy. And in the biblical, so we, we often think of prophecy, again, as a word that is about predicting the future. Uh, and so prophecy can mean predicting the future, but that's not the primary meaning of prophecy. Prophecy, similar to apocalypse, is actually about calling people today to live in a certain way in light of what's true. And so sometimes that truth might be anchored on this is what God is going to do, but often that truth is anchored on this is what God has already said, this is what God is doing. And so it's a prophetic word that is calling God's people to live in a certain type of way in the midst of what might be happening in their world. So it's prophetic. And yes, it does have some uh, things that, that uh, foreshadow what is coming and what God is going to do. Uh, but most of the book is actually reflecting on what God has already done. And now living in light of that. Uh, prophecy is primarily about imploring people to live in a certain type of way. So the third uh, kind of literature that this is, is the word, is the literature style known as apocalyptic literature or an apocalypse. And so not only uh, have we talked about the word and its meaning, but this is a style of literature that is not unique to Revelation. There is a number of apocalyptic books uh, that were being written at this time, and they share a bunch of common f- features. People are often represented in apocalyptic literature as animals. Historical events are represented in the form of natural phenomenon. Colors and numbers are symbols and they have meaning. Apocalyptic literature seeks to do two things. To set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the future. But also, and more importantly, to set the present moment in, the, in light of the invisible realities of the present. This is the goal of apocalyptic literature that people would see what's actually happening, and it's highly symbolic. Um, And so when you read, you know, about Jesus being a a lamb with a sword coming out of his mouth, if we were to see Jesus as he is right now, is he literally a lamb with a sword coming out of his mouth? Or is that a symbol? I think if we're familiar with the scriptures, we can say, well, that's a symbol. And we have a good idea of what that might mean. Uh, And similarly, There's a lot of symbols in apocalyptic literature, and we need to be wise and discerning on what those symbols mean. Uh, And for some of us who are maybe more literal leaning that we want to interpret everything literally in in, in Revelation, uh, it becomes very problematic. And I'll just say that from the get-go, and we'll unpack it as we go. uh, Because you're going to have to pick and choose as you go through the book, well, which things are symbols and which things aren't symbols. uh, And it becomes very, very confusing. And you will tend to start to interpret the book according to your own agenda and what you think is true uh, than in the consistent way that the that the, the book is actually written in. I would argue and encourage us instead to view it in the type of literature that it is, in the context that it is, and recognize that these are all symbols. That the numbers are symbols. The images are symbols. And that doesn't mean that they're not true. Uh, And so this is where people get stuck. Uh, Are you telling me that that Revelation isn't true? That's exactly not what I'm telling you. It's so true. John was so convinced that it was true, and this is what he gave to a desperate church to live by this truth and to give their lives for this truth, but he said it in a way that captivated their imagination that was embedded with symbols. Just really quickly, the the literary structure, this is important to keep in mind as we go through it. Uh, We come to the end, the, the end of... 
the world, if we want to call it that, that's actually not what it is. Uh, I'm not sure what better term to use. But the end of the book, the season that it's talking about, we come to the end at least five different times. And so this book is actually cyclical, not chronological. Uh, and this is probably the cause of much confusion for people when they read the, the book of Revelation. They think it's a sequence or a chronological sequence of events that need to happen in order for, the, for what God wants to do to be fulfilled. Uh, and they're right that there is a sequence, but then you get to the end of a sequence, and then it goes back to the beginning again. And you get to the end of the sequence, and it goes back to the beginning again. Uh, and a number of scholars have recognized this and, and have suggested this is actually the key to understanding what's happening in the book of Revelation. Uh, that, we, 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 that there's a cycle where, where John is acknowledging the hardship in the world that we live in, uh, the judgment that is going to come, and then it, we come back to a scene in heaven where we recognize that God is on the throne and that he's still in control. And the cycle actually goes over and over and over again throughout the book. Forty times in the book of Revelation, John says, I saw. Thirty-two times he says, I heard. And so 72 times throughout this book that we're... T- Uh, that John is saying he saw something, he heard something. And I'm reminded of Jesus who says, do you have eyes to see, ears to hear? He said this throughout his gospels, right? When we read the book of Revelation, do we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear what Jesus is showing us? Because John is saying, I saw something, I heard something, and it's different than what you're seeing. You know, you're seeing the turmoil that's happening in the world, but this is what I saw. You're hearing the, you know, the news headlines and how terrible everything is, but this is what I heard. Do we have the eyes to see what John saw? Do we have the ears to hear what John heard? And so it's important that we ask, because of the structure of this book, that we don't ask what happens next, but we need to ask, what did John see next? Because what John sees next is not necessarily what happens next. A good example of this is in Revelation 12. Um, we see uh, this, this imagery that actually describes the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus. In Revelation chapter 12, the theological center of the book, right in the middle of the book, right in the middle of, you know, what's currently happening and uh, in AD 90, and then right in the, in, in, in the predictions about what's going to happen in the future, and then we're back to the scene of the Christmas story uh, where Herod tried to kill Jesus, and that's right in the middle of the book of Revelation. And so we can't think that the book is chronological. It, it, is, it is going in cycles, and it's referring things past present, and future. So we just need to be aware of that. Okay, so if apocalyptic means unseen, uh, the, the unveiling of things that we don't see, uh, I want to just highlight the three kind of big picture unseen realities uh, that chapter one already alludes to uh, that will help us frame the book of Revelation so that we can actually uh, understand and get its, its major themes. So the first unseen apocalyptic reality is that Jesus is coming. It refers to this in chapter 1, verse 7, and then it refers to it three times at the end of the book. Uh, and it's not that Jesus will come someday, it's that Jesus is coming. It's going to be repeated in the beginning again, and at the end, uh, he's, he, it says, He is coming, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. Uh, and this is, you notice the I-N-G of the word. This is not someday in the future this event is going to happen, but Jesus is actually always in the process of coming. Jesus is actually always in the process of moving towards us. That Jesus, we're going to get to this in the next part, but Jesus is actually uh, more present now than he was. That his kingdom is coming more now than it did. 
And so we, we sometimes think that we're in the season of waiting and that the Revelation is talking about this point in history where Jesus is going to come, and there is going to be a climactic moment. We're going to talk about that. Uh, but Jesus is coming. And again, the time is near. And we, so he, say, he says this right at the beginning of the book. We just read that in chapter 1. The time is near. We're like, really? The time is near? It's 2023. Is it really near? Come on. Uh, and so th- this has been confusing because people have been, church has been convinced for all of history that the time is near, that Jesus is going to return, and that all these events that they thought were about the future were going to happen. Um, but, the, but Jesus is saying this in the same sense that he says in Mark 1.15, where he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom has come near because the king is nearer, because Jesus is coming. So the time in that way is always near. Jesus is actually always behind the curtain, and we just can't see him. Jesus has always been enthroned since the inception of the church because of a death and resurrection. The victory has already been won. And so there's this nearness that the people of God have been convinced of throughout history. Uh, but it's not necessarily that the time is near and it's not here yet. It's like the time is near and it's, it's, it's right there. You can almost see it. If you have the eyes to see it, you can see it. It's close. It's at hand. I remember in, in 2019, I met this guy named Terry. I was at this youth conference event uh, over Christmas break, and it was about to be 2020. I don't know if you guys remember. Uh, everybody thought the world was going to end in 2020. Anybody remember that? <laughs> Y2K, yeah. Um, and, and Terry had like this outrageous, like, neon yellow and green and like his hair was like all done up and I'm like dude what is going on he said well if I'm gonna meet Jesus I want to be in my best wardrobe (laughs) is what he said and I remember like 2020 like counting down like is this the time the time is near Um, and yes the time is near the time has been near the time will continue to be near there will come a point where Jesus comes back uh But the time that's being near, what's being referred to is the presence, the authority, the kingship of Jesus is at hand. We maybe just can't see it. Third apocalyptic reality is that Jesus wins. Spoiler alert. Um, I, I read the story last week that there's a group of seminary students and a janitor, and the students for a season... Uh, so these students were at seminary. There was a janitor that was looking after the facility, and the students for a season were going to play basketball at a nearby high school gym. And while they played, the janitor, uh, who allowed the semin- seminarians into the gym to play basketball, uh, read their Bibles uh, during that one hour that they were playing. And so one day, one of the uh, guys that was going to seminary asked the jan- janitor, what have you been reading in the Bible? And he said, oh, Revelation. The seminarian chuckled and said, yeah, right. Uh, No, really, said the janitor. And so the seminary, having heard from one of his professors that no one really understands the strange book, uh, asked, do you understand what you have been reading? Oh, yes, he replied. The now smiling smiling janitor replies, oh, yes. Chucking again, the seminarian asks, well, then tell me what it means. The janitor looked to his right and to his left, leaned into the seminarian's ear and whispered, it means that Jesus is going to win. But even more so, what the, what the janitor didn't realize is that Jesus has already won. 
Jesus has already won. Uh, And to come back to the text, it says in Revelation 1 verse 8, Jesus says, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. Alpha and Omega are the first and ending letters of the Greek alphabet. The first and the last. The first and last of any sequence, Jesus saying, that is me. He's saying, I am the beginning and the end. The beginning is the word arche, which means beginning. And the end is the Greek word, which, which is telos, which means the inherent destiny of something. So Jesus is actually the beginning. John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and nothing came into existence except through the word. That Jesus is saying, I was the source of what came to happen, what came to be at the very beginning. And I am the source and the destiny of everything that's ever been created. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. This is the way the book of Revelation starts in 1 verse 8, and it's also the way the book of Revelation ends in chapter 22. Jesus reminds us again, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. No matter what you see, there's more going on than what you see. This book is about the supremacy of Jesus. And so I want to end this morning by focusing on the last text uh, the last section here in the first chapter, which we read earlier, when I saw this, I fell at his feet as if I were dead, but he laid his right hand on me. You, you can just like feel the gentle posture of Jesus to John, right? When I saw this, I fell at his feet as if I were dead, but Jesus laid his hand in, on me and says, don't, don't be afraid. You know, you see these images, you're living in this world. I'm telling you, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and the grave and so this is good news yes that Jesus is on the throne regardless of what you're walking in regardless of what ways our world is spinning out of control and in turmoil regardless of what you see John is saying there's an apocalypse and it's good news if I pull back the curtain you'll see that Jesus has already won that he is near that he is in the process of coming In fact, I'm so convinced of this, John is saying, bank your life on it, overcome. No matter what happens to you on this earth, it will be worth it if you bank your life on the reality of Jesus being on the throne. And he will have the final word because he has the keys to death and the grave so you can trust him. This is the apocalypse and this is the best news that you'll ever hear. Not everything as it appears in this world is actually true. Many of you have asked in recent weeks, months, years, uh, in the last few years, Jesus, where are you? God, where are you? Well, this is what Revelation was written for. This, we are who Revelation was written for in that sense. John is saying, look, listen, Jesus is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Let's stand uh, together. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for your supremacy. We thank you for your kingship. Lord, we confess that we all have different ideas about what's happening in the world, about what's going to happen. Um, But we lay those down at your feet, our opinions at your feet. Lord, we recognize that what you gave us in this letter, the revelation of Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, from Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ. Lord, what you gave us was actually not a prediction or a roadmap as much as it was a call to be wholly committed to you. 
to be wholly convinced that at the end of the day, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Lord, may we give our lives to you. May we trust you. We thank you that you have the keys to death and the grave and our ultimate eternal hope is in you. Holy Spirit, may you guide us as we walk through this book that's full of complexities and things that we maybe can't grasp. But even if we can't grasp them with our minds, Lord, would you capture our hearts? Would we become more devoted to you in this time? In Jesus' name, amen. I'm excited. This is gonna be uh, this is gonna be fun. Uh, we're gonna, I think, see Jesus maybe in some ways we've never seen him before. Uh, and I hope that uh, as we prayed earlier, that our devotion to him, our commitment to him, would be greater than it was before. As our as we see what John saw, as we hear what John heard, uh, that it would impact the way that we live uh, in this world today. Uh, just a reminder: you can pick these up uh, at the Welcome Center for eight bucks if you wanna. Uh, follow along and take notes kind of as we go through the book in that way. Uh, also a reminder that we have starting point uh, week two happening in second service and you're welcome to join us uh, for that. And then the third reminder, we have prayer teams available. If there's anything uh, that you'd want to pray with somebody for uh, or about, uh, we would love to pray with you. Uh, let me just pray a blessing on you now. Father, we just thank you for each person in this room. Spirit, we thank you that you go with them from this place. Lord, I don't know um, what things they're walking into that they need to overcome. Lord, I don't know what things that they're facing that they need an apocalypse for. Uh, But I pray that you would pull back the curtain, that you would unveil yourself. Jesus, that we would see you for who you are, that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, I thank you for the commandment and the encouragement uh, to not be afraid. I pray that we would walk with courage and hope because we actually have seen and understand the good news apocalypse. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week. Uh, We'll see you next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.